0: Hi, and welcome to Take Some Time Off with me, your host, Maeve. I am an educator, a yoga teacher, and a wellness advocate who recently quit her job in New York City and moved across the country to Salt Lake City, Utah to take some time off. This podcast explores what it means to use my time productively and offers weekly suggestions for mindful and meaningful uses of your time too. Stay tuned. A silent assumption that leads to anxiety and depression is my worth as a human being is proportional to what I have achieved in my life. This attitude is at the core of Western culture and the Protestant work ethic. It sounds innocent enough. In fact, it is self-defeating, grossly inaccurate, and misleading. From Feeling Good by David D. Burns, MD. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Here I am. It's Wednesday morning. I've got a cup of coffee. I got a smoothie next to me. And you may notice that my voice sounds extra smooth and sultry because I have just purchased a microphone. Shout out to Amazon for selling $13 microphones. Um, And I'm really glad we started with that quote um, because I think it sums up how we get burnt out. Because we are told and made to believe so often that our worth is our work. And I definitely ascribed to that my entire life. Um, I believed that the more that I did, the more that I achieved, the better quality of the product I produce and almost the product of myself uh, was, then the more I would be loved and valued. And that is just so false. And there's a lot of reasons why that idea has come up in American culture. It has to do with capitalism, which really pushes us to become products and to prioritize production, productivity. Today, I want to fight back against that concept. Our worth is not our work. And If you believe that, you'll likely end up being really, really burnt out at some point in your life. It only took me 27 years to do it, to to get sick of it and have to stop. And I would love to give you some tips so that uh, you can address it sooner rather than later. So let's talk a little bit about burnout in this episode, and let's talk about how we can value ourselves inherently regardless of our work stay tuned. So there is a lot of buzz around burnout right now, um, particularly because there was a big article released in BuzzFeed on millennial burnout. Um, It's called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation um, by Anne Helen Peterson. And I have talked to a lot of friends who felt like very much connected to this piece, felt like it really resonated with them. And I too felt that way. Um, But I don't think it has to be this way. And um, what Peterson writes is, here's a quote, in a market shift from the generations before, millennials needed to optimize ourselves to be the very best workers possible, end quote. So basically, because our parents and their parents strongly believed in the American dream, this Really false reality that the more you work, um, the more you'll achieve and the more satisfied you'll be, the more money you'll get. And we know that's not true because racism and classism and sexism and all kinds of shit exist. Um, but they thought it did. So they raised us to believe that if we work super hard, we would be content and successful. And then what we found is that that's often not true. Um, And instead of kind of changing the narrative, we have – stuck to this idea that maybe if we just tried a little bit harder or got a better job or build a better resume, we would succeed. And so what we'll find is that we're working tons and tons of extra hours, way more than any other generation. We have way more degrees because we think that maybe if we get a degree, it'll help us or a graduate degree. Um, but then eventually we go into debt from that, which leads us in this kind of disgusting cycle where we have to work more. And then eventually we burn out. It's too much. Um. Peterson's article made some really bold claims that definitely resonated with many Americans and people around the world. Um, But there's also been a great deal of pushback on her statements. Specifically, people have felt like millennials are not the only generation to be burnt out. And even more so, uh, burnout is much greater and much more serious for those who are already marginalized and oppressed in society. And there's an excellent article that I really recommend you read called, This is What Black Burnout Feels Like. It was written as a response to Peterson's article by Tiana Clark. Um, I'm going to read a couple excerpts to give a different perspective from uh, Peterson's and from my own, and then I hope we can continue to dialogue about what it it means to be burnt out in a society that already oppresses and fatigues so many people just based on um, parts of their identity, right? Okay. Clark writes, this attempt to define ourselves as the spent frazzled generation has become popular because white upper class millennials aren't accustomed to being tired all the time. They aren't used to feeling bedraggled as blacks and other marginalized groups have for a long time. No matter the movement or era, being burnt out has been the steady state of black people in this country for hundreds of years. She goes on to write, the data is bleak. Not only are we paid 61 cents for every dollar our white male counterparts make, but our telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes, which control aging and other key biological functions, are literally shrinking due to excessive oxidative stress factors like everyday racism. According to the study of women's health across the nation, black women are 7.5 years biologically older than white women. And finally, Clark concludes burnout for white upper middle class millennials might be taxing mentally, but the consequences of being overworked and underpaid while managing microaggressions towards marginalized groups damages our bodies by the minute with greater intensity. So those are just a few excerpts from um, Tiana Clark's article. I totally recommend you check it out, but I think it definitely needs to be acknowledged that um, burnout is not the same for every person and can be very, very serious, even fatal for those who are already oppressed in society. Furthermore, that means that our solutions to burnout, how we think about resolving it and... Um, ending this culture needs to focus more and revolve around those who are the most oppressed, those who are the most burnt out due to their constant fatigue from the way that society oppresses and mistreats them, that their burnout needs to be resolved first, right? We need to heal those who are harmed the most and we all can be healed in the process so when we come to think about solutions at the end of this episode um, I'm going to try to think a little bit bigger than just me and I hope that you can help me by responding um, online or in person or leaving a voice message so that we can think of some collective solutions to this really deep and complex problem. So my story of burnout probably roots back to my middle school and high school experiences. Um, I had really loving and supportive parents, um, but I think like so many kids, our parents were raised to believe that the more we work and the harder we work, the better it will be for us. And in some ways, that is definitely true. Um, So kind of... The saying in my household was, if you can do it, then why not do it? So if you can get a 4.0, if you can be the team captain, um, if you can sign up for like six extracurriculars instead of one, then do it. um, And then do it well, right? Um, Another thing that we said a lot was, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And both of those values are powerful, what I think what was missing growing up and, and in society in general is this idea that there's some, there's some limit. You have to draw your own lines on how much you're willing to work and how much you're willing to sacrifice in terms of your personal happiness and your personal well Um, that concept never occurred to me. And so I just worked super, super hard. So yeah, I got 4.0s, pretty sweet. Um, I work. I worked so hard and took it so seriously. Often staying home, not hanging out with my friends at school. Um, you know, getting into sort of like panics. I remember the first time I noticed a knot in my uh, in my shoulders from like stress was like fifth grade. <laughs> um, so I was I was working myself up pretty early on. Um, I went to a pretty prestigious university for college, and so that idea of like worth from work was so prevalent there. I think it was sort of what was uniting everybody on campus was this idea that we could all prove how smart we were, how valuable we were by working so much. So people would brag about like how late they stayed in the library or like how little they slept or, um, you know, how they partied all night and then went straight to, uh, studying and then aced an exam or whatever. Um, So it, again, was not a culture that perpetuated uh, self-worth from your inherent value as a human, and it definitely didn't promote um, self-love and self-care. So I went through that experience and was starting to feel I think I that's when I started to feel depression for the first time. I didn't know it was depression back then. Um, but I remember crying a lot on my senior year of college. <laughs> um and just feeling like this overwhelming sense of sadness, really, and straight from there, literally three days after my college graduation, I started teaching in New York City with an organization called Teach for America. Um, If you know about Teach for America, TFA, you know that they are such perpetuators of burnout culture. Um, Intentionally or not, they sell you on the idea and these are my claims, you can you can push back, but um, in my experience and many of my friends who went through the program, they sell you on the idea that you can be the change. You alone, you and your hard work, you and the amount of hours you put in, you and the amount of effort you give will change the lives of the children you teach, which is such a powerful thought, but ultimately it's not, entirely true. We need collective power. We need societal change. We need structural change. Um, and that's a lot of pressure on one person, right? And so what I found <laughs> was I was so motivated my first two years teaching, and I really did believe that I could change the world, which is so cool. And that's um, one characteristic of our generation, millennials, that um, Peterson writes about in her article is like this sense of idealism that um, gives us motivation when otherwise we might see things a little bit differently. And I'm proud of that idealism in a way, but I also think that a more realistic viewpoint and one that also includes more people in the solution than just me, right? Because I'm just one person and I'm also not bigger than that. Um, And I'm also part of the problem as much as I am part of the answer, right? So um, I worked really hard and I stayed until like eight or nine o'clock. I had a co-teacher who like was really big on work-life balance and she would often like make comments to me and I'd be like, well, this is for for you. It's just a job because you live here already. You have like a partner and you went to school for this. But for me, like I'm here through Teach for America. The mission is that all children will one day get a fair and equitable education. And this is my life. Like this is what I'm here to do, which is amazing. Like such a cool thought, but really, really ultimately unhealthy, or at least I found it to be so. Um, So I would stay way late. I had other teachers in my uh, cohort that I had one who stayed until 3 a.m. a couple of times. She would sob in her classroom after school. Like The weight of the world felt as if it was on my shoulders anyway. Um, so I did that for two years and I was still pretty content. Like I felt like what a blessing it is to be doing this really meaningful work. Little did I know that my mental health was pretty rapidly deteriorating. So I started to realize the second year that I moved to New York that I was experiencing a ton of anxiety. Um, it manifested for me in, OCD kind of ten- tendencies, which runs in my family. So it was a lot of thoughts about um, diseases that I might get or like infections. Um, it, it focused a lot on medical issues as a way to kind of uh, distract from what was the root of my anxiety, which was burnout um, and the need for rest and a release of the pressure I was putting on myself. Um, But I really did get very anxious and without thinking at the end of that second year, I wanted to optimize myself. I wanted to be better, to add more value to who I am and to my life. So I accepted a grant to um, teach English in Korea with the Fulbright Association. And I honestly, at that point, my intuition was strong enough to tell me that I should not go. I knew that I was... Very anxious that a major, major life change like that would not be great for my mental health, but the name of the organization on my resume and the clouts of the organization and the idea, like I, I just remember saying, and everyone said to me, it's a Fulbright, you can't turn it down, right? So I did it. Um and I am so glad in some ways that I did because it was an incredible once-in-a-lifetime experience. I lived in Korea for a year. Um, I traveled all over the world, India, Cambodia, Vietnam. Um, but I came back so depressed. And that's when I started to realize that um, year back in New York was when I realized that I did have clinical depression. And... Um, I think all of those years of just going and going and even working myself up through anxiety too finally hit me to where I just stopped, right? And instead of feeling really over-excited, over-anxious to do work and show up, I couldn't show up at all. Um, I didn't feel like myself. I found it hard to laugh I found it hard to see my friends. Um, And these are all just like traits of depression. If you have been there, you know how it feels. And it's, you know, a result of both situations and chemical um, imbalances in your brain, right? But um, I was depressed and I was still teaching, but in a way that I couldn't get behind as much anymore because – I mentally like, wasn't able to, um, but I still felt like my work is the best part about me. Me doing this really meaningful work, which teaching is such a powerful and meaningful profession, um, that's what was the good part about me, right? And this depression, this anxiety, um, this sense of not – being whole, that was the bad stuff about me. And if I just focused on my career and my work, then um, I would be good, right? So that was still my motivation, even in the depths of my depression. Thankfully, around April of that fourth year um, teaching, I got some, my mom convinced me to see just a primary care physician. I had been in and out of therapy, but um, see a primary care physician to get some, tell about my symptoms and then eventually got some antidepressants prescribed to me. And after about a year of trial and error with um, dosage, I am now at a place where I feel super calm and stable. I was still trapped in my work. Um and at this point I was in my 5th year of teaching. I landed my dream job. I had always wanted to work at this school and it is a beautiful beautiful school. And I was like this is going to be it, right? Like I haven't found fulfillment yet through my career, but this is the place where it's going to all come together for me. And I will be enough. I will do an excellent job. I will feel Worthy and whole once I perform like I know I can. And I will perform like I know I can at this new school. And now I've got these anxiety meds, so that's going to help. So I went into this fifth year of teaching pretty optimistic and then just found that the culture of burnout, of working until you can't even move of staying late, of prioritizing your career over your wellness, over your friends or your family. Um, It persisted, even in like an amazing organization like the one I worked in. And um, especially in New York City, I think that idea is really prevalent. Like your career is vital and crucial to your identity. Um, And that's definitely the sense I got again. But thankfully, through therapy and um, meditation and my new medication, I had a clearer view of the situation and I started to realize that maybe I needed to really reevaluate. And I think being at this amazing school where I felt so fulfilled in my career and realizing that I still wasn't happy didn't feel whole, didn't feel better about myself as a person, Um, even though the work that I was doing was now both meaningful and effective, um, that my career actually wasn't the solution to my issues, and my issues were deeper. They were systemic, they were cultural, and they were also personal, and personal ones that I hadn't had the time to really grapple with or see clearly. So after... Months of deliberation and crying and all kinds of stuff, I eventually quit my job. Um, I quit at the end of the school year. I I left my students on very good terms and my school on good terms, and I do miss them so dearly. But I knew that I needed to make a drastic change to stop my life from going in the way that it was, which was towards a worse version of myself, a version of myself that couldn't show up fully anywhere. So, fast forward, here I am. Uh, I moved across the country to be with my partner and to take this time off. And I really do feel like I am getting so much closer to who I truly am, to evaluating what I want to do because it means something to me and because it's in my heart, not because it looks good. how I want my identity to be formed and how much of that I want to be about my career because I think I do want my career to be defined in some part, to define in some part my identity. I think how we spend our days is really important. And if I'm spending my days at a job, I want it to be a job that really matters. But I also want to know that I am whole and complete regardless of what my job is. And I am so much closer to that. Um, My life is definitely not perfect now, but um, I feel way better and i think my family and friends can tell i wanted to share that story in case it's meaningful to you at all and i also think it kind of pushes back a bit on peterson's article where she says um eventually she kind of says like this is how society is there's nothing you can do about it and now it's just kind of helpful to know that that's what's going on and it's not just you, right? I think that actually we can do something about it. It comes from personal choices like mine that say like I'm not going to succumb to this and it also comes from systemic changes like companies giving more time off and um, people working multiple smaller jobs or um, defining themselves in multiple ways. Um, it comes from us supporting each other and from encouraging each other to take care of ourselves and to uh, prioritize our well-being as well as our work and our productivity. Um, But I do think it's possible. So that's my story of how I survived burnout. Um, And we'll close today with some ideas about how you can too. So then how do we prevent burnout? I have some ideas and then please share with me your thoughts and how you think we can prevent or avoid or recover from burning out. Um, My first suggestion is to quit. (laughs) This is obviously not for everyone. And very seriously, that's a really privileged choice to be able to make. And I know that um, the fact that I was able to move and the fact that I could have a little bit of time not working um, and even the fact that I knew that I could get a job based on my background and my identities—that's um, a huge privilege. So that's not an option for a lot of people. But if it is, and you honestly come to work every day thinking that you need to quit, then just do it. <laughs> I don't know. That's my advice. Um, I think it's life's too short, right, to be that unhappy. Um, and noting, right, that you have to be really privileged to be able to do that. How can we support? people collectively so that other people can avoid that too. I think some ways that we can do that are by promoting workers' rights, promoting um, a fair minimum wage, um, donating money and time to causes that help people who are less fortunate than us, right? Um, So solution number one is quitting if possible. Solution number two um, is to bring more mindfulness to your work. So you're at your job and maybe you just need to tune in a little bit more, right? If you are at your job for eight hours a day, think about how much time that is collectively over your life. That's a lot of your life. It's too long to be worth, to be discounted, right? To be like, oh, my life starts at five o'clock when I go home with my family or when I go to the gym or whatever, Um, how can you bring more mindfulness and presence to your work? So maybe you're just filing papers, but can you find some enjoyment in that? Maybe in the sounds that it makes or um, the way that it feels when it gets accomplished? Or how can you build relationships at work that make you feel more whole and more um, satisfied while you're doing your job, right? So find ways to be more present and mindful to make the tasks that you're doing at work more fun because you deserve that. Um, another idea is to have strict cutoff times for yourself. That's something I definitely tried to do my last years in teaching. So I would make sure I had a time that I knew I would go home, try to really stick to it, which was very hard. Um, But I definitely suggest something like that, maybe scheduling classes, like um, a workout class or a hobby for a certain time after work so that you know you had to leave. One thing that I would do was schedule my therapy sessions um, for 5 o'clock, which meant that I really had to leave as soon as work was done. Um, And so at least one day a week, I knew that I was going to leave as soon as the school day was done, and that was really helpful for me. Um, That leads to my next tip, which is... Self-care and or therapy. I mean, for me, <laughs> shout out to my past therapist, but none of this would have been possible if I hadn't had someone to give me um, a different outlook and to show me that I had inherent worth and value. And um, for me, that came from therapy. Uh, other forms of self-care are meditation, exercise, eating healthy, um, relationships with friends or loved ones. Um but make sure that you have those scheduled into your life too because that will make it much easier for you to go wake up and go to work in the morning. And then so those are kind of more the personal things we can do to prevent burnout for ourselves, but I like I said, I think this is something systemic, it's cultural, um and it's going to take us making some systemic changes too. So one suggestion I have is to push back, push back at work. So when people ask you to give more of your time than you feel you're willing and able to give, express that, right? Express your emotions at work when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling um, like too much is being asked of you, let others know. Because I'm sure other people are feeling the same way. And very often um, we Project ourselves to be these little like robotic work machines, which you are not. We're humans. And um, I think there's definitely a place for emotion in the workplace. Again, that's a privileged statement. Um you sometimes are not in a place that you can push back, especially if you fear losing your job. But if you are someone who doesn't have that um issue then you maybe have even more of an incentive to speak up for those who don't have a voice in the matter and for the wages for those who don't have a voice in the matter too. Um, So one, speak up, fight (laughs) back. Two, um, would be to think a little more critically about what you want out of life. That's a kind of a bigger one, and it'll take years, I think. I think I'm in the process of a year- years long journey to doing that for myself, but making time to meditate, to journal, to reevaluate outside of what society has asked you and told you to do, what you want your life to look like. Because maybe it's smaller than you thought, or maybe it's way bigger than you thought, um, but it might not have as much to do with money and power as you're told it has to, right? So find some time to take a step back and look at your life and how you want it to go, the direction that it's heading now. The last one I have is to examine white supremacist culture. So the United States is absolutely 100% founded upon white supremacy. And um, there's a resource that I have looked at several times in my past, and I'll share it with you all Um, in the show notes so that you can look at it too. Um, It is from a book called Dismantling Racism, a workbook for social change groups, and it's called The Characteristics of White Supremacy Culture. So this article is like a list of characteristics that are very common in white supremacist cultures um, as opposed to um, the oppressed cultures in our society. And there's a lot, and I think you should definitely take the time to look it over, but The first one and the one that I think really relates to um, burnout and our idea that productivity is king is perfectionism. So we have a characteristic of – white supremacist culture is that making a mistake is confused with being a mistake. There's little time, energy, or money put into reflection or identifying lessons learned that can improve practice. Little appreciation expressed among people for the work that others are doing. Um, More common is to point out how the person or work is inadequate. And then along with that, another characteristic is sense of urgency. Um, This continued sense of urgency that makes it difficult to take time to be inclusive, encourage democratic or thoughtful decision-making, or to think long-term. Frequently results in sacrificing potential allies for quick and highly visible results, and reinforced by funding proposals that promise too much work for too little money by funders who expect too much for too little. And a final characteristic of white supremacy is quantity over quality. Um, And this kind of goes into like production, product versus product as well. But resources of an organization are directed towards producing measurable goals. Things that can be measured are more highly valued than things that cannot. Little or no value attached to process. If it can't be measured, it has no value discomfort with emotion and feelings, and no understanding that when there is a conflict between content and process, process will prevail. So that's just something to think about. Um, I think a lot of these issues that we're facing in our society are a result of classist and racist and sexist uh, ideologies that pervade All of society. And so it's worth taking a big step back and examining how your values of work and productivity relate to those. All right. This was a big, big episode. And I feel really happy to have expressed what I think uh, burnout is and how it means, what it means to me. Um, And now I'm really looking forward to hearing back from you. So please, please reach out either personally or on Anchor Podcasts where you can leave me a voice message or on my Instagram at VEG and the City or at Take Some Time Off Podcast. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for being here and listening. Don't burn out. want to leave you with this quote from an article called Millennials Don't Have a Monopoly on Burnout by Jonathan Malasik. He writes, the question can't just be how I can prevent my burnout. It has to be how I can prevent yours. The answer will entail not just creating better workplaces, but also becoming better people. Thanks for listening.